This is Author Talk, presented by Author House, the leading provider of services to help authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. Author Talk is a show about new books and the authors who wrote them. It's an opportunity for prospective readers to hear directly from the writers, to hear what inspired them to write and publish, and to hear all the inside details about their books. Here is Author Talk with host Steve Jorgensen. Greetings for Author Talk. This is Jay Douglas Barker. Our book today is titled Gentle Shepherd, Ministries, Discipleship, and Supplementation Courses. Our author, who joins me from Idaho, is Rayola Kelly, and uh, this book was also co-authored by Jeanette Haley, one of her associates. Rayola, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. Glad to, to visit with you and share your story. 575 pages. This is an extensive read. It's more than just something you could sit down and casually go through. What is the style of your book? The style of my book is to help people in a simple way come to an understanding of their Christian faith. A lot of times people are left to their own devices to figure out what they're supposed to believe they don't always come up with the right beliefs, so this is to help them, uh, guide them, I should say, in the right direction as to what their understanding should be, their beliefs, and their tenets of faith, so that they can stand uh, on what they believe and give a defense of it, give an account of it, instead of being uh, confused. One thing I noticed as I was going through your book, it is not just commentary. You do have some towards the uh, last chapters, but in the beginning chapters, most of it is scriptural references and maybe a slight commentary. Would you describe your book as a transdenominational in its nature and approach? Yes, it is. It's, it's, not, it's not geared towards what we call pet doctrines. It's geared towards the basic foundation of the Christian faith. A lot of people get caught up in uh, doctrines or particular theology or ideas, and this is just to keep it simple, because the Bible talks about the simplicity of our faith and the simplicity of Christ. And so many times we complicated it uh, by trying to have greater insights, and we just need to come back to that simple, uh, the simple truths of Christ and His Word. There are some complexities in the religious Christian faith not just in uh, the way you've described it, but uh, from observation standpoint, there are individuals that seems to seem to stand up and uh, feel like they've got something that's special, new, renewed, unique, and that people should listen to them. Your book does not approach it that way. It's more of a practical application, isn't it? Yes, it is, because I think that uh, we get sidetracked from what's important, uh, as far as the Bible, as far as God's heart. God's heart isn't that we get these great insight. God's heart is that we know Him, and we understand His basic truths. They're very basic. A child can understand it, and He even says so. If you don't come to Him as a child, you can't really receive His truth. If we complicate it, then we, we will get off base of what's important to Him. When you began to write this, uh, this has been a lifelong project in some regards. How long ago mm-hmm. did you begin this particular book, Gentle Shepherd? Well, I became a Christian in 1976, and I became a very avid Bible student uh, because I had been involved in, in other belief systems that were not really uh, what I would call correct or conducive for, for my well-being. And so I decided I wanted to know for myself. Uh, so many people operate from what we call assumed beliefs. 
they have been told this, and therefore it's okay. But it's up to each individual to find out what they really want to or need to believe for themselves. Because I can't defend defend somebody else's beliefs. So I set out to know for myself. And so it's been since 1976. But this uh, book came into operation in about 1992 when we were going to a missionary school. And we realized they didn't have good enough material to really disciple the missionaries or for the missionaries to use overseas. So I decided I should try to write a discipleship course, and this is what came out of it. Is this something that, a, a, as you mentioned, missionaries can use? An individual, a Bible scholar, Bible teacher, anyone could reference the material here and find access that would benefit them? Yes, it is. Uh, basically, it's good for a, a new convert because it just helps them in their basic tenets of belief, but it also helps the student. It equips the student of the Bible to be a greater disciple of Christ, and it's a useful tool for a teacher if they want to teach it. Uh, the main thing, it also allows people to do greater studies in the Bible if they want to. It gives them a foundation and basis, and then they can do more study. In fact, I've written other books. Uh, that can be intertwined into this discipleship course that gives more information. So it's very extensive, Uh, depending on the student. Yeah, your chapter one talks about the Godhead, which is a a topic that confuses a lot of people, but one thing that you have shared in here is the historical references to God or the Godhead, the names of God, for example. You have uh, 10 or 12 of those mentioned. There's more than that available if those, uh, I guess, individuals studying this wanted to go deeper in their Bible study. Sure. It just gives, um, it gives enough where a person gets to get hungry and, and maybe to build up their curiosity. Uh, I think one of the things that we have in our society is an instant society. We want to know it all at once. But that's not possible for the Bible, and it's not possible for a God who's eternal. And so we have to be willing to allow our curiosity to be stirred up so that we will go deeper and further into our studies. And I hope that this, uh, you know, discipleship course sort of gives them that little taste so that they'll go deeper and want to know more for themselves. You've also given the reader opportunity, if he is a student or if they choose to be, Uh, an opportunity to put personal notes and establish a growth path that way as well. Yes, I want people to put their own uh, understanding down. And the beauty about learning is that if you put your own understanding down and then you go back through it, you will realize how much you have learned. And so I want them to put their own heart into it, their own understanding, their own meditation, their own thoughts in it, uh, how it impacted them. And so I wanted to give them the opportunity to do that as well. And again, I'll underscore for the re, for the listener, most of your commentary is not commentary, but just uh, scripture references, maybe a short paragraph describing what that content is about. You do get a little more involved towards the end of the book, but in the first few chapters, it's it's pretty straightforward. That's your approach, isn't it? Yes, I want scripture to speak for itself. Uh, I think there's a lot of opinions out there, and I have my opinions too. Uh, But that doesn't necessarily make it uh, proper for somebody else. And so I try to keep the commentary down, and my goal in this discipleship course was to connect the dots. Uh, The Bible is so full of information, but 
the dots have to be connected for a person to have a complete picture. So my goal was to use scripture to connect the dots for people so that they could have a fuller picture of who God is, what salvation is, what the gospel is, all those uh, issues that we have to come to terms with. And some of, them are, some of those issues have been confusing to the Bible reader, and uh, you give them some options so that they can study on their own and develop their own uh, observations. Yes, I don't want to tell people how to believe. And that's, I think that's a problem with a lot of different denominations. They want to influence how people believe. I want people to come to terms with, uh, with who God is for themselves because it's up to them to know God for themselves, and, and they can't know God through somebody else. And so my goal was to give them some options and encourage them to study it out for themselves and to establish their own belief system and not be controlled or dictated to by other people. Uh, and, of course, again, it comes down to you can't defend other people's beliefs. Ariola, as you completed this book, who did you think would find it of value. To me, any Christian that's hungry and thirsty and really just wants the simple truth, I think there's so many Christians out there that are tired of the debates. I mean, there are endless debates about well, who is right and who is wrong, and they get confused and they think, is there just something or some source that I can look at and just see it for myself and develop my own understanding. And so I want to take out all the debates and just let Scripture speak for itself. I do put, like you said, a bit of commentary in it, but I really try to stay away from influencing how people should think. I think they need to come to terms with that for themselves. To describe this to my listeners in a couple of sentences in a condensed form, the abbreviated version, how would you do so? Well, it's about the love of God. It's about our hope uh, in God. It's about the the heart of God, which is salvation, which is being delivered from all the things that just wear us down and oppress us. And that's the beauty of this this discipleship course, is that it helps you become a follower of Christ. And the more that you follow Christ, the more that you're set free to discover who you are. A lot of people are are trying to say, who am I? And it's basically found in uh, right back to their creator who designed them to be uh, someone special. And so I wanted this book to give them that opportunity to discover that. And the student can take it at their own pace and develop mm-hmm. their own understanding by taking their time if they need to. Yes. Uh, you can take as much time as you you want. You can uh, get other resources and uh, study the uh, uh, the text or study the theme and come out with a better understanding. I just wanted people to get a little bit hungry and thirsty. There's so much out there that people are just inundated. And what do you eat? Of? What do you partake of? What do you believe? And so this was my way of just cutting out all the nonsense that's going on and giving people an opportunity just to come back to the simplicity of who Christ is and the simple truths of his word. Would you underscore that that might be the approach that you took in order to make it different from others in the marketplace? 
Yes, well, it is, but it's more extensive. A lot of the discipleship courses that I've seen, uh, there is this uh, influence to cause people to think a certain way. But the other part is it's not extensive. Most discipleship courses are very uh, surface, and, and it's a quick way of trying to get people, you know, at a certain place. But this is a discipleship course that is to bring balance to a person's understanding, at the same time give them the opportunity to meditate for themselves what they should believe and what they should know. 575 pages. What were the challenges in getting this completed? The challenges was redoing it constantly. (laughs) It's been redone about four times as far as uh, changing scriptures, uh, correcting it, not changing scriptures, but changing the version I used. Uh, I I used the King James uh, it, because it, there's a lot less complications in that. But uh, it was it was going through it about four times and retyping it because I started on a word processor. And I think my other great challenge was just to keep it simple, to stay away from my opinions, to stay away from pet doctrines, and just keep it simple and keep it straightened and on that path that I wanted uh, to establish for other people. You've done a great job. The title of the book, again, is Gentle Shepherd, Ministries, Discipleship, and Supplementation Courses. And our author, Rayola Kelly, has joined me from Idaho. Rayola, where can my listeners get copies of your book? Well, they can get it through Author House, and Author House is, you can find them on the Internet. And they can also get it through our ministry, uh, Author House is probably better source, but our ministry is General Shepherd, and you can find us uh, on the internet. It's uh, www.gentleshepherd.com. Uh, but uh, we have a couple of different sources and where they can get the book. Rayola, thank you for joining me today, sharing the background story into a very important uh, subject matter and an important book for those who want to know more about Scripture more about the gospel, and more about their faith. Thank you for joining me today. Thank you for having me. For Author Talk, this is Jay Douglas Barker. You're listening to Author Talk. We'll be back right after these messages. Have you heard? The pages of American Patchwork and Quilting magazine come to life on our new weekly online radio show, American Patchwork and Quilting. Join Pat Sloan, our blogging and quilt designer host, as she talks about the latest trends, ideas, and inspirations. Her guests include quilt pattern designers, authors, quilt shop owners, and our editors. All quilters, just like you. Call in with your questions. Get quilting tips from industry experts. Learn about free patterns. Hear behind-the-scenes stories from our magazines, American Patchwork and Quilting, Quilt Sampler, and Quilts and More. Get the scoop on free stuff and find out more about the best independent quilt shops in North America. To listen to a live show, tune in Monday at 4 p.m. Eastern. Just log on to allpeoplequilt.com slash radio. To hear past shows, go to iTunes and search for American Patchwork and Quilting Radio. We hope you'll join us because we know that quilting changes everything. Welcome back to Author Talk, brought to you by Author House, helping authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. The title of the book, The Prophecies of a Father, and the author is H.E. Ambassador Edward M. Ture, 
And filling in for Mr. Ture is Dr. Michael Wanda. He's serving as proxy for the ambassador. Hello, doctor. Yeah. Great to have you with us. Thank you very much. All it's way, my pleasure. All the way from London. Uh, well, let's get right into it. The Prophecies of a Father. What inspired uh, Mr. Ture to write this book? Well, uh, uh, Ambassador Edo Toure was inspired by uh, so many factors, but I will just put down um, uh, three main factors. One, uh, he wants to pay a fitting tribute, uh, tribute to the memories of his benevolent father, Paramount Chief Kande Toure, for his uh, prophecies of all the great things that he has accomplished. And then secondly, he, uh, he is determined to throw educative light on the previous and ongoing political events of their great party, the All People's Congress, and the country at large for the benefit of posterity. People need to know about that party because this is a political book, political satire, if you like. And then thirdly, uh, he wants specifically to educate uh, his readers about the institution of Paramount Chieftaincy and the customs, culture, and traditions of their region, Makini, Northern Sierra Leone. These are the key reasons that inspired him to write this book. And who are the audiences that he has in mind for this book? Well, his target uh, audiences are uh, those interested in history and the politics of Sierra Leone and the institution of paramount chieftaincy in Northern Sierra Leone, those as traditional rulers are called paramount chiefs in our country, and uh, secondly, educational institutions, policymakers, and politicians within and without the continent of Africa. What's the relationship, the relationship between his career as ambassador of his country and being an author, being a part-time author? Yeah, uh, the roles are interrelated, as you may appreciate, or readers may appreciate, and they blend very well. In this book, uh, most of the themes make meaningful reading to the world of diplomacy, which he is as a senior ambassador, he's a diplomat, writing and politics. As a, as a senior diplomat, it is his role and responsibility to inform and educate the diplomatic community and the world at large about the history, culture, traditions, customs, and the politics of his country, Sierra Leone. This book addresses all of these issues. Well, very complex, uh, comprehensive. Uh, how long did it take him to write the book? Uh, the good Lord put him into remembrance, really, for exactly one week. And uh -oh. then the drafting of the manuscript began. Then he accomplished the entire process in less than six months. Very good, very good. Uh, what are some of the challenges, difficulties that he faced in writing the book? Well, uh, combining what he was expired, inspired sorry, to write and his busy official, his very, very busy official schedules as a senior diplomat ambassador of his country to the United Kingdom uh, was very, very challenging. But uh, actually he must confess that uh, he had the guidance of the good Lord all the way. So what's next for the ambassador? Is he planning to write in any more books? Of course. 
uh, the, the ambassador has more books to write. Writing is an inspiration. Once you start writing, you're, you're inspired. We have tested this once, and this is official and very first book, a premier book, if you like. He wants to write so many books. Uh, currently, when I spoke to him, I speak to him on a regular basis. I spoke to him uh, yesterday and day before yesterday. He's, in fact, uh, drafting a manuscript, and he has almost done a one-quarter of it. He's continuing proudly towards uh, the end of the year or beginning of early next year, Otto House will have another manuscript uh, from the hands of Ambassador Ture. Did anyone help him write this book, The Prophecies of a Father? Well, indeed, um, writing is, is a collective uh, endeavor. It's a collective endeavor, and uh, so that's the reason why it is exciting. Um, you'll have a lot of people who help you psychologically, uh, spiritually, and then academically or intellectually, if you like. Uh, but specifically, he wants to thank his family at home in Leone and abroad, his personal friends at home in Leone and abroad, his colleagues in the diplomatic community here in the United Kingdom and elsewhere that he represents, uh, his energetic team at the Leone High Commission in the UK, uh, the proofreader and editor, Dr. Michael Nicholas Wunder, and publishing, and his publishing company, Author House. Above all, his love and thanks go to his president, the president of Sierra Dr. Anes Bai Koroma, uh, their great party, the All People's Congress Party of Sierra and his compatriots, Sierra Finally, on a different but very important note, he prays through this medium, that is this interview, that uh, the country Sierra and other regions affected by the deadly virus Ebola will be put in good stead to contain it. And as uh, they mourn their dead, they also pray fervently for those that are recovering from the virus. The title of the book, The Prophecies of a Father, the author, H.E. Ambassador Edward M. Ture, and we've been listening to Dr. Michael Wunda, who's filling in for the ambassador. Uh, what's the best way for everyone to get his book? Autohouse is promoting the book currently, and uh, if people want to get it, they should consult um, Autohouse um, and, and, and himself personally here in the UK, and the Sierra Embassy here in the United Kingdom, in London, uh, direct contact would be good, and also through me, uh, my telephone number 0207. 793-7212 email address Dr. Michael uh, Michael Wunda at AOL.com Well, thank you so much, Doctor, for joining us on Author Talk. Appreciate it. Thank you very much. Thank you. You're listening to Author Talk. We'll be back right after these messages. Homeschooling? Half questions? Get your pen and paper ready. It's the sociable homeschooler, Vivian McNinney. Fridays at 5, 4 Central on Toginet.com. After a handsome blue-eyed Texan fell in love with Vivian at the Victoria Station in London, she found herself at DFW Airport with a tiny suitcase and a snazzy little duffel bag. Well, 25 years later, she is now happily married to that blue-eyed cowboy. They have four grown children, ages 24 to 18, who became willing guinea pigs when she unwittingly stumbled upon the world of homeschooling. Wildflower Academy flourished for 15 years. They survived and thrived, and you can too. Vivian will be covering a wide range of issues that face homeschoolers. What do you do with kids in the summer? How to set up your one-room schoolhouse? How obedience is paramount? And what to do with those snakes? 
Plus, you'll be sharing ideas and insights that she gleaned from other homeschoolers. So join us for an engaging hour with a sociable homeschooler. Vivian McNinney, Friday afternoons at 5, 4 Central on Toginet.com. Welcome back to Author Talk, brought to you by Author House. Helping authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. The title of the book, Lady in Red, Where Is Your Head? Surviving Brain Injury and Coma, and the author is Carol Ann DeBellis, and Carol Ann joins us now on Author Talk. Hello, Carol Ann. Hi, how are you today? I'm doing great. Great to have you with us, and great to hear your story. This story is your story. It's It tells the story of a woman who survived a brain injury and a coma after a car accident on an icy New Jersey turnpike back in 1987. You were 34 then, and before that, life was pretty good. You called it the perfect life. Why don't you take us back before the accident, Carol Ann? Um, Before the accident, I was married for eight years and with my husband at the time for 12 and I had a phenomenal uh, relationship with him. We were best friends. We knew each other in grade school, so we were always friends, and I was married uh, when I was young to someone else and got divorced, and then we wound up getting together. Really beautiful relationship, did everything together. And I had a fabulous job in the most prestigious uh, salon in Center City, Philadelphia. And I was right at the window doing hair. Everybody could see me doing it. I'm really busy. And went to Paris, France a couple times uh, in five-year span and to learn new styles. And it was really, really good. I had great friends and great family members. So everything was basically perfect in my eyes. Perfect. And then that fateful day, uh, can, well, I'm sure you can remember the, that day. Can you want to share that with us? Well, the only thing I remember that day, I don't remember the accident at all. My father came to pick us up in his car, and he said, do you have any coffee? And I said, no, it's already gone. He said, let me run to Wawa, be right back. And then I remember him coming back and then us going down the steps to get outside in his car. It was me and my husband, and then we picked up my sister and my girlfriend. And we were all in the car, and that last thing I remember is picking up my girlfriend from around the corner, and I know nothing. The next thing I knew was two and a half months later, I realized I was in a hospital bed, and I looked down to see if my legs were there, because I was all confused, where or why am I here? And my legs moved, so I was happy. Next thing I knew, my husband walked in, and I said, why am I here? And he turned white. And he wouldn't talk. And I said, tell me why I'm here. I'm alive and I'm happy to be talking. So please tell me. So he told me how on the way to New York City to see my brother in an off-Broadway production and on the turnpike, the rain turned to sleet and we slid on the, the ice and hit the guardrail and on the New Jersey turnpike, a car hit us. And then he told me I was in a coma for seven days to 10 days in and out of consciousness for the next two weeks. So I basically started to cry, not for me, for him and my family, what they went through, seeing me go through this, how horrible it was. And he told me I was now in a rehabilitation. I had to learn to walk, talk, and everything like that. So that's the first thing I remember after the accident. So 
just to give everyone an understanding of these kinds of injuries, uh, there's a whole lot more uh, spinal injuries, brain injuries than one could imagine. Without a doubt. I mean, we're talking about one million incurring traumatic brain injuries every year. One million. Wow, it's amazing. Amazing. And, of course, uh, some aren't as... uh, I don't know what to call it, fortunate or blessed or to recover the way you have. And one thing I thank God, there was a girl in my room when they changed my rooms at one point at McGee Rehab, and her mother and three sisters came every day, and she did not know who they were because she forgot her whole past. They showed her pictures when she was a young child. She remembered nothing. And mine was short-term memory. If my husband left the room and he came back five minutes later, I would say, where were you? You weren't here all day. So I thank the Lord for that, that I remembered all my past and all my family members. So right then, that helped me recover in a better way, knowing that I remembered everybody. What was it like learning to walk again? Oh, it was so horrible. I felt like I was in school. I hated being head injured, you think you're fine. I thought nothing's wrong. I could walk, and they made me walk on a um, holding. I was in a wheelchair first, then on a walker, and always someone always by my side. And then I was walking uh, myself, holding two bars, and I was always so frustrated because I couldn't do it. And I would get mad at the people trying to help me. And they said, look, your brain is telling your legs not to walk. It's not your legs. So you will walk again. And we have to do this every day for therapy to make your legs walk again. And I was just always so frustrated and angry. I was very angry. So the perfect life went to a life that completely upside down. And you basically lost everything. Yes, I did. Yes, I did. You didn't lose your life. Uh, You didn't lose, uh, obviously, the future, because here you are today and and, uh, put yourself back together. But at that that time, tell us all what you went through and what you lost. Well, my husband, they always say, I heard later, with a couple that's married or together, if the head injury happens to one of... 98 to 99% of those couples break up because they're not, the person that was brain injured is not the same person. And I heard later, my husband used to tell people, the woman I was in love with is not home anymore. Mm. So that part, I was very, uh, very um, strong back then, very bullheaded, very in control, very passionate and all those things. And then I became like a little girl. It's like I was six years old and my husband didn't know how to take care of me because I was always the one that was in control at the time. So that part was hard. And he used to always look at me really funny. And I would say, why are you looking at me like that? And he re- he was really intelligent book wise. He read everything about brain injury. So he was waiting for something to happen. Plus I wasn't the same person. And I saw it all in his face that you know, the person he was talking to, he didn't know anymore. So that part was sad. They wanted me to see a psychologist, and I said, I don't need one. And what I learned about people that aren't right upstairs, they think everyone else is crazy and they're fine. And I kept saying, I don't need a psychologist. So for 18 months, I saw nobody. So I saw a movie with my husband in my home, and I, and I started to cry. He said, what's the matter? I said, that girl reminds me of me. 
that I'm doing wrong and I never knew I did wrong. And I looked at him. I said, I, I want to talk to Rona. That was the girl's name at McGee. I want to see the counselor. And he started to cry and was so happy because nobody could make you see a psychologist but yourself. So then I went and I, t- I had four to six years of seeing this person that made me a new person again. It was really hard, but I knew my brain needed to learn again. So it was, it was like at 34, I was being raised again from a child. So I had a second chance that I realized later going through it was really hard and very frustrating. But I thank God. My, they kept telling me, your brain's going to learn again, so be patient. I was on medicine for bipolar because I became bipolar after my accident. She said, your brain is not chemically imbalanced, and it will be fine again. And thank the Lord, after six years, it was. So you not only recreated yourself, but you even aspired for something better. That's that's what's uh, amazing. After going through all you went through, you wanted even more out of life. Yes, yes, yes. So how did you tackle that? How did you go up that mountain? Well, it was really day by day and very frustrating. I thought I can go back to work again, and my doctor brain injured doctor Lawrence Korn said you cannot and I said I'll cut your hair right now and he let me cut his hair in the hospital I did a beautiful job and he said yes you did a very well very good job but mentally you are not ready to go back and he was a hundred percent right after about two months I went back and I couldn't cut hair and talk at the same time so my clients I already lost 75 percent because I was gone for three months And the ones that came back to me, I wasn't Carol Ann again, so they didn't come back to me because I wasn't, you go to a a hairdresser for their, their talent and their personality, and I did not have one. And my boss at the time said, your foot is tapping and it looks like you can't wait till they get out of your chair. And I said, you're right. So I only lasted eight months. I realized I really couldn't cut hair anymore and be the hairdresser that I was. So that was really hard, really hard. What other things, what other, the the process here, going through this process of getting your life back and even more, what were some of the uh, critical parts of that 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 helped you to get where you are today? Besides the psychologist, besides the psychologist. Um, Well, well, just in my life, my friends, I remembered them physically, but I didn't remember mentally how close we were. So when I would talk to them, I was just always had a little arrogance and they would call my husband after being really sad about it. Cause when people looked at me, I looked fine. Cause again, I was walking, talking, eating, cutting hair and doing all that. And they, he would say, she had a brain injury. She's not right. It's going to take a while. And he would say, do you remember how close you were to like your friend Debbie, like or your friend Joseph? And I would look at him and say, we weren't that close because I really didn't remember in my heart. So that part was really hard. And he tried to talk to me and tell me and then talking to my psychiatrist helped. But it basically was a day-to-day process. And the thing that helped me immensely, I got really close to God and I prayed. There were times I'd be walking down the street and crying and I would look up and say, my Lord, I know something, this is happening for a reason. And I thank God I'm alive. It could have been worse. So me always getting at the worst side of, my, of the day and feeling so horrible that I wanted to die, 
I realized it could have been worse. So that helped me immensely, immensely. It helped me. And even at 59 years of age, you thank God my brain injury cured me, as you said. Cured you. Cured you of what? Yes. Well, back then, I didn't see it, but I had to control everything. My husband used to laugh and say, if Carol Ann wasn't happy, nobody's happy. And he was right. I had to have my own way. I always controlled situations with friendships and my husband. He allowed me to control him, which I didn't realize I was doing until after the injury. And I realized how mean that was. Like, you know, I was more, I was always giving and loving, but I had to come first. I had to be happy first before anything. After my injury, I realized that I was like that. I was able to look back and say, oh my God, how did he love me so if I was that way? But he was real insecure and he needed me to be that way, I guess. And he was, you know, it didn't bother him. But everybody else that knew me would say, you controlled the hell out of him and you controlled everything. And I would say, no, I didn't. But after years have passed and I look, I'm able to look back and I thank God every day for that. I'm able to look back how crazy I was and that made me be a better person today, realizing, because I wound up in a psychiatric ward for seven days. I wanted to, I didn't know why I wasn't happy, but I was basically on the other side. I definitely know, I was looking forward. I don't want to die right now, but I'm looking forward to it because it was peace, love, and so beautiful. And coming back to life where I had to get up and get showered, go to work, talk, and do all this stuff was really, really hard for me, really hard. And I wanted to die. I thought of suicide every day for maybe a good six months. And the only reason I didn't do it was I could not have my family walk in and see blood or whatever, however I was going to do it. So one day I mentioned to my psychologist, my psychiatrist at the time, and my aunt was next to me. And I said, Brenda, I want to die. I don't want to be here. I hate life. I hate everything about it. And if I don't die, but then, then I'm sorry, I forgot to tell you, my husband and I broke up. I thought if we broke up, we would miss each other and it would be back to where it used to be. And he, after a few months, did not want to come back and didn't want to divorce me and just left me in limbo. So that's when I wanted to die mostly, even you know, beforehand I wanted to, but now really wanted right. to die or I wanted to pay somebody to kill him. And I really thought of it every day. Wow. But my doctor said, I need to put you in Haddaman University Psychiatric Ward. And my aunt said, Brenda, do you think she really needs that? She said, I, does she wants to kill herself or her husband? So they mm. put me in there. It's the best thing that ever happened to me because I saw real crazy people and I realized I was not crazy. Right. And I realized I wanted to live and I wouldn't, wouldn't do this to my family. And hearing we had group therapy three times a day, I realized their stories were worse than mine. Mm. And I thank God, and that helped me immensely go into that psychiatric ward for seven days. Well, this is more than a conventional conventional memoir or self-help guide, like a lot of these kinds of books could be. Uh, Not only Carolyn... Uh, Carol Ann's own words, but you have a diary that your cousin Michael Bello wrote during your coma and rehabilitation. There are hospital documents, notes from nurses and visitors, and of course, uh, it was Carol Ann's collection of inspirational quotes that helped her through all this. So, Carol Ann, we're out of time. It's it's great to um, talk to you. Uh, amazing story, obviously, true story, and a story that 
in many ways has a happy ending. So tell us the best way to get your book, Lady in Red. The best way to get it now, it's not in stores yet, bookstores, because it needs to do well on Amazon.com on the Internet. And if that does really well, then they put it in bookstores. So that's my dream. So Amazon.com, you put my name, Carol Andy Bellis, Lady in Red, Where Is Your Head? It comes right up. You can get softback or hardback, and you'll get it in three days. Thank you so much, Carol Ann, for joining us on Author Talk. Thank you. Thank you.